welcome to Liberty Unlocked. I'm Dom Watkins. So my background is philosophy and my focus both in my own work and when I teach others is primarily in how do you develop a convincing and persuasive philosophic argument. But if you actually look at my uh, work, especially my books, you'll find that they're very fact-based. They're, they're packed with a lot of compelling facts that are used to concretize, amplify, support the abstract argument. And so I've really been looking for an opportunity to stress this aspect of persuasion because I don't think that it's come up enough in what we produce so far. Because to be an effective persuader, you need both philosophy and compelling facts. So that brings me to today's guest, Hannah Cox. So Hannah is a political commentator, and I followed her on Twitter for a while. But a few weeks back, um, one of my other friends shared one of her op-eds on Twitter or was responding to it on capital punishment. And when I read it, it was just pure factual statements that added up to a very compelling argument in an area that's extremely contentious. And so it really impressed me, and I wanted to have her on to talk about how to persuade using facts. So uh, I'm going to link to the article in the show notes. And a few final things before jumping into the conversation itself. I, for those of you who are listening in podcast form, I actually recorded this outside, which is a whole story that uh, I won't go into. And so if it sounds like there's a truck driving through the recording studio, it, I am perfectly safe. And uh, if it, I don't think it should undermine the sound quality too much. Uh, as always, you can support the show by signing up for the newsletter at donswriting.com. You can support the show financially at libertyunlocked.com where every dollar goes to bring the podcast to a larger audience and make it more effective. Now on to the conversation with Hannah Cox. Well, thanks Hannah for coming on. So uh, I followed you on Twitter for a while, but uh, one of my friends, Matt Bateman, posted an op-ed you wrote on the death penalty that really jumped out at me. A lot of what I teach about persuasion and communication is focused more on how we communicate kind of abstract ideas and frame issues. But I, I think one of the undervalued things is just how very straightforwardly presenting powerful facts can be. So I want to come to that. But um, you, I, I, I'm always interested in people's journeys to like how they view the world today. Now, my understanding is you started out like basically kind of a standard conservative worldview but you ended up someplace at least a little bit different. And so uh, yeah. w where did you start out when you first started forming your political convictions? Yeah, I love that question because I think political journeys are important. And I think that it shows people are persuadable and that people's minds can be changed. Um, you're right in your assessment. I was raised Republican. I'm from the Deep South. My dad's a Southern Baptist minister. Uh, I was homeschooled when I was younger. I went to private schools after that. So my worldview is pretty much what you would guess somebody's worldview would be coming from that background. Uh, when I went to college, I went to a school called Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was trying to get into the music industry. So it was a really big artsy college. Um, and it was just a totally different environment than anything I'd been around before. It was a melting pot of people from all over the country. And so it was really eye-opening for me in many ways. I started meeting people from other areas and different backgrounds and really starting to just learn about walks of life that have been totally different from mine. Um, but I wasn't that political of a person. I was sort of a like raw, raw Republican. I'm going to vote for the president. You know, I liked John right. McCain a lot in 08, which is so embarrassing. <laughs> um, but I, I did. And 
Um, I thought Barack Obama was like an out and out socialist. I thought he was going to ruin the country. You know, that's kind of the extent of my political framework all the way through college. When I got out of college, I was working in the music industry and I was miserable. I really hated it. I just hated the industry. I hated the kind of work I was doing. I wanted out. So I was looking at going to law school, but wanted to make sure that I would actually like the day-to-day -day of that uh, where I'd pursue it. And so I stumbled into politics. I started working on the side of my full-time job in the entertainment industry for a Second Amendment group. Um, I saw it, it was with an attorney that was running it, and I thought, I like the Second Amendment, I could do that. And then I could kind of see if I like what he does day-to-day. -day. And through that work, realized that I really loved um, the policy. I loved working with people on policy. But as pro-Second Amendment as I was, um, when I was going around and speaking to that group, state chapters throughout rural Tennessee, I was encountering people who were almost entirely Republicans, but who had really different views than I did on a number of issues outside of the Second Amendment. Um, I heard a lot of things that really kind of grew into Trumpism, but this was 2012, 2013. And so I was right. hearing a lot of anti-immigrant sentiments. I was hearing a lot of anti-Muslim sentiments. And I thought, I, I like Muslims and immigrants. What is this about? You know, this isn't the kind of conservatism I was raised on. Um, and it forced me to really hit the books and figure out what I believed. And I realized at that point that I sort of just had um, a very surface level understanding of economics and politics. And so I started reading as much as I could. Um, what were some of the some books really that jumped out at you as really impactful? Well, actually, the attorney that I was working for gave me a copy of the law by Frederic Bastiat, and mm -hmm. that was fundamental. I think everybody should read that. Um, it was a foundational book for me. And then it did something really interesting. I never thought I was smart enough to be involved in economics. I hadn't been particularly good in math in school, and so never in a million years did I think some economics was something I could really grab and ascertain. But Bastiat is an amazing writer because he can take these very complex ideas and distill them down into digestible um, chapters. And so when you read him, you feel smart and you feel like, oh, I can participate in this. Okay. And so I really um, started gravitating to the Austrian School of Economics because then I felt empowered and capable of um, being involved in that field. And so I got into Hayek. Hayek is still one of my favorite economists. Um, but I also found a lot of modern day people who were writing. Like Jeff Tucker was hugely influential on me. He was with the Foundation for um, Education and Economics at the time. Now he's at um, the American Institute uh, for Research and Education. But he um, he's a, it's similar to Bastiat's writing. He can take these really big ideas and break them down and apply them to modern day issues that we're facing. So it helped me get a, a better framework, not only on the principles, but how to apply them in the modern world. Um, and then I also found people like Rand Paul and Justin Amash, like Justin Amash in 2014, they had tried to take him out of office. And I saw this campaign speech where he came out very powerfully and he had just clobbered the guy. And um, gave a very forceful speech. And I thought, I like that guy. <laughs> so I started following him. Um, and he was really influential for me because he would post every single vote that he took and explain what the constitutional breakdown was around it, why this was constitutional, why it was not. And so it helped me get a much better applied knowledge of the principles that I was forming. And it was through that that I realized I was actually more of a classical liberal than I was a conservative, at least in the American language. Um, that's important, I think, because conservatism has fluctuated so much, even over the past decade. What does conservative mean? Uh, I think we're continuing to struggle with defining that right now in America, whereas classical liberal um, is not a term that has been used as widely in America, but really is a very defined school of thought that has um, 
a number of ways of approaching issues that have been proven successful. And so um, I think people who ascribe to that worldview can kind of fluctuate typically between the Republican and Libertarian parties. Sometimes you even see some leftists who will have some of those leanings. Um, so I, I kind of find myself partyless these days, as I think many Americans do. I feel a bit politically homeless, but I have a much better concrete understanding of what I believe and why. And over the years, I have really sought to uh, work on policy, because I think that's where you can make the biggest difference, especially considering how gridlock politics is these days, and just knowing that all political parties are going to let you down. Power corrupts, even if third parties were to gain the momentum that they hope to get, um, I have no doubt that they would also become corrupted. It is just the nature of the entity itself. But when you're working One on policy- interesting things was like, I feel like we were kind of noticing the same thing in terms of like, I was, I had spoke at the original tea party groups and kind of did that circle for a while and saw those first stirrings of Trumpism. But really what it was, wasn't Trumpism. What it was is what it was revealing was that there were people who mouth certain convictions, but it wasn't, we have convictions and we judge the party by whether it lives up to these convictions. It's much more, the kind of like tribal coalition that is once sort of power and prestige for its side and wants to take down the other side a lot. And so what happened in my judgment is that the people who really did have convictions basically got pushed out because they were, they were willing to say, no, these, this is right or wrong, even if it hurts our chances to win an election or to like take Nancy Pelosi down a spot. And I think, like, to me, the heartening part was that even though it was a relatively small number, unfortunately, that there were people willing to say, no, I'm putting my convictions ahead of playing that kind of party game. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and to me, it is encouraging because it's tough. It's tough even now working in politics to really stand your ground. You know, it often means turning down opportunities that you want or more money or more power or larger platforms to be consistent and it's not always easy to do, but we have seen a good number of people standing strong in their convictions and really um, seeking to make sure that they are continuing to expand the understanding of what they're advocating for. For me, it was really important to see that because I was super discouraged to find out so many Republicans could be easily swayed. Um, even though I'd sort of seen some of those uh, stirrings at the grassroots level before 2016, when I saw the party really give up its limited government, fiscal, conservative, individual liberty values seemingly overnight um, to go along with who they thought could get them the most power, that was upsetting to me. I, as a Christian, was deeply upset by that. Um, you know, I was raised with real reasons to be a Republican that really are rooted in the understanding that government hurts people, even when it's well-intentioned, even when it's operating at the top level that it could possibly operate at, it hurts people. It doesn't do a good of job of, of solving solutions as free markets and charities and individuals do. And we know that, that these essential rights must be guarded and protected um, from an always overreaching and growing government. So I had very altruistic reasons, I think, for believing in the things I believed in. What I found was that all of these things I had been defending my life, you know, when people would say Republicans were just bigots or they were just people who were hiding behind um, you know, states' rights or things like this to conceal more nefarious uh, ideas or motivations. I had spent my entire life being like, no, that's not right. That's not why we believe these things, and here's why. But I kind of felt like 2016 made a mockery of me in some ways, because I realized that there were quite a few people who were not um, adhering to these 
to these values for the same reasons as I was. I'm really interested in sort of how you built your approach to trying to persuade people of your ideas. So I, I think it's, uh, it certainly makes sense to me that uh, Bastiai would be somebody that you would respond to because like, you know, he was very much, I mean, sometimes literally telling stories, but certainly using analogies, using very relatable examples, trying to uh, like Hayek for all his brilliance would just kind of like, pummel you with abstractions and lacks of, lack of definitions and um but uh bastian and a, a number of other economists i think who, who really kind of boil things down with stories and relatable examples um and i've heard you speak a little bit about the importance that you think storytelling plays in communication but sort of what was your trajectory had you always been a writer was that something you were kind of developing later how did you think about trying to win people over for your ideas? That's a really good question. I, I don't know if I was as cerebral in that as it might seem. I think it was more of a natural um, intuition that I had. I just knew that worked. I came out of the music industry. I was a songwriter. I was a musician. And so what are you doing with your music, your storytelling to connect with people? essentially. And there's something very powerful in that, you know, music can really transform and move people. And there's something almost supernatural in its ability to do that. But I think coursing throughout that is uh, the narrative and the ability to connect with people and sort of that feeling that you get when you listen to a song and you go, oh, I felt that way, or I, that's exactly what I went through. You know, it's, it just hits you. And so I think that you can apply that to any number of areas and fields. Um, but certainly we've seen the left, I think, traditionally has been much more effective at storytelling. They, they always have a person and a face to um, attach their policy to. And I think that they get a lot, of, a lot more done in some areas in some ways because of that. Uh, whereas the right has been uh, typically gravitating towards more data and research and stats. And you can have all the facts on your side in the world, but you can't always get people to pay attention and listen to them. So you've got to find ways to make that more digestible. Uh, so certainly Bastiat was influential in that way for me, but uh, my first full-time job I took in politics was with the Beacon Center of Tennessee in Nashville, and Justin Owen was my boss there. He's still the CEO and president at the Beacon Center, and he is just, um, he's so young, it blows my mind. He's just like a prodigy. He's, he's a genius, and he very much taught me that as well. I was hired on there initially as their outreach director, which was a position they were forming to essentially tell stories. Um, my job kind of built up and grew over the years I was there, but initially was hired to find people whose policy positions we were championing and help tell their stories, both through video and visual communication and op-eds and testimony at the legislature. And we had a lot of success while I was working there on our policies because people, instead of saying, oh, I get it, occupational licensing is a problem. Okay, we need to get rid of it. They would say, I saw Deborah's story and the government put her out of business and this is so unjust and why should she have to jump through these hoops to work? And they would feel very attached to the policy because of that and then get much more active in trying to move the legislature to pass those reforms. So um, I definitely honed my craft and skills and learned so much from Justin in that regard. And I think I've just continued to move forward in that way and certainly criminal justice reform, which I now... Um, primarily work in is is full of stories that will really grab your attention and tug on people's heartstrings. 
I was pretty late to the game. Like I was that person, you know, reading kind of dense philosophy and economics when I was younger. And I mean, it's funny because my main influence is Ayn Rand and her philosophy. And of course, like she became influential primarily through telling stories. Um, But I think part of it was I felt like there was something manipulative about it. And like, as I got older, part of what I realized is that like if all you have is stories, you have nothing. But what you're really doing is you're making vividly real for people the impact of something in their values that would otherwise be remote and yet is true. Like for you know, if if we're talking about the minimum wage, it's one thing to have, you know, an argument about why creating an artificial floor for wages leads to unemployment. It's quite another to talk about like this person who's wants to make something of his life and then finds it illegal for him to work because he doesn't yet have the skills to be valuable on the market. And that specific story, what it's doing is it's not taking you away from the facts. It's making real. What does it mean that it creates unemployment? Because that can just be words. And so like being able to integrate storytelling into reasoning, I think that is that's the core of being a logical and effective communicator because otherwise, you know, the logic doesn't really have meaning in a person's mind until it's seen in the actual concrete, you know, effect in the world. It sounds like you were very open to stories from the beginning just because of your orientation. Uh, Did you, did you find, do you find it difficult because a lot of what, I think this is mostly an excuse, but there's something right about it, which is people think, well, it's easier to like tell a story about how, oh, somebody was in need and the government gave them a handout and everything was better. It's harder to tell a story that articulates something as, you know, complex as a supply and demand uh, narrative. What are your thoughts on the challenges in finding good stories to promote liberty? Yeah, I don't think, I think this, they're obtainable, I think they take a little bit more work to find. Um, and I say that because so many of the people who are hurt by government, they just kind of take the knock and keep going, right? They just keep plugging away. They're people that are just trying to live their American dream. They're trying to work hard. They're trying to raise their family. They're not always even seeing the hand of government as the culprit for what happens to them. Sometimes they are. Other times they're saying, you know, I was just going by my business and all of a sudden I got this fine or I got shut down in this way and I guess I just have to start over and move forward. Um, or they might try to fight back temporarily, but they quickly run out of money and connections to do so because the government can, they can hang on for as long as they want, right? They, they're paying people a salary anyways. It's nothing off their back. But if you're an attorney to try to fight, you're running up the tab quite quickly. And so Um, What we did at Beacon was we would actually sit back and look at our policies and think, who does this help? Um, Who's the person that needs this most? What do they look like? What kind of, what kind of story are we trying to tell? Um, Who are we trying to help? And I would really have a mental idea of what this person looked like. And then I would go find them. And so it took a lot of groundwork. Like we were trying to talk about corporate welfare and talk about the ways that corporate welfare really hurts small businesses and individuals and everyday Americans and how it's a very corrupt practice. We wanted business owners who had been impacted by it. Um, And so we had Memphis where Ikea had gotten like $9.5 million or something to open up. um, And they had come in and all these furniture stores around them were impacted by that. They had essentially taken these people's tax dollars and given it to their competitor to open up right across the street from them even though the jobs weren't needed. A lot of these furniture stores couldn't find employees to work at the hours and times that they needed them to. And so um, I had to go around 
and try to find these business owners and get them to talk to me, <laughs> which, you know, that's kind of a mouthful to, to spill, sure. but to try to produce a documentary examining this. And we, um, we found them, but it took a lot of legwork. I was like driving up and down the street in Memphis, like finding uh, furniture stores that had closed, tracking down their business licenses, getting their phone numbers, calling them, and then trying to get them to talk to me and not think I was a weirdo. So it was, it was a bit more of a legwork than I think some people are always going to put into it. Whereas people who are really in need, um, especially people who think that they can perhaps get the government to give them something or looking for that might be a little bit easier to find. Um, but I've never done it on the left. So I don't know, maybe they're doing as much ground game as I am to find them for my policy issues. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, although the, uh, I think the legitimate part about what makes it difficult, right? I mean, let's go back to Vassiai again, the seen and the unseen, right? Like a lot of the harm is the person who didn't start the business because they couldn't put together the money they couldn't uh, afford the licensing. You know, it's it's the medicines that aren't created. It's the it's the things that don't happen or the very indirect damage. But I think that uh, that's a really great story because that is in effect the unseen or the hard to see that you guys were able to track down. I really like that, and I think it's um, one of the things I encourage is you know people who aren't going to be professionals. They still have their industry. They're doing professional communicators they have they're very embedded in whatever world they're embedded in and they'll see specific things that they could bring to light and just tell that story and that's a huge win for people who value freedom is for just people going about their lives to find and articulate those stories because those of us who are like paid to sit in front of a keyboard all day like that's it it's much harder work and uh you know, Google only gets you so far. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's a lot of, and it's a lot of relationship building skills. You know, it's getting people to trust you, to let you tell their story, which I think is a really big deal. If somebody agrees to work with you in that way, especially when they don't know you from Adam, they don't know your work, they don't know where you're going with it, you know, to really um, buy into what you're trying to do and to agree to put themselves out there. It's also a lot to ask of somebody as someone who is in the public eye, um, and who has been in the public eye most of my life due to my dad's position, it can be brutal. People can be really horrible to you. They can write mean things about you. You can be misconstrued and it can go even further. I've had people try to get me fired over my views. I've had people, you know, write my employers complaining about me. Fortunately, I've always had good employers that had my back in that way, but not everybody does. And so when you're going to somebody who's not maybe that political, they're just trying to, you know, live their lives and you ask them to put themselves out there in this way, is asking a lot. So it really does take a lot of interpersonal skills and trust to, to cultivate those relationships. I don't, who's your dad? You mentioned his position. I don't know. He's a pastor. I don't think you'll know. Okay. Him, but pastors families are very much. Oh, that, yeah, um, that totally makes sense to me. Um, I, I, that's actually an interesting issue just in terms of, you know, you mentioned the challenge of like getting people to tell your stories, not thinking you're a weirdo being in the public eye, holding like free market oriented views. I think there's, definitely a lot of persuasion that people don't think about is how you as a person are perceived. So in the world that I come from, which is, you know, Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, you get most people that meet people interested in her philosophy in college, they're usually like weird, aggressive, and sometimes jerks. And it can turn them off for life. And so a lot of what I have to know going into a conversation is that's the baggage that I'm carrying, even if like that's not who I am. And so I have to realize part of being persuasive is I have to like contend with that. 
how much uh, do you think that, um, like, what are some of the like kind of credibility or personal challenges that you find? I'm sure some of it comes from just your views that like it's going against the kind of politically correct ideas of our times. Um, I guess some of it is probably being a woman trying to engage in a debate in the realm of ideas where I think traditionally women can get dismissed there. What, what, you know, what are the things that you've encountered that you've had to contend with? Well, I think the biggest challenge I face is I'm not someone who's content with preaching to the choir. I could find a second amendment issue, which I'm passionate about and I care about, and I could stump for that all day long and preach to the choir and get praised and really never have to do a whole lot of work other than short the base and continue to get monies and maybe go in and stomp out gun control from now you know, here and there. But largely, we have won that, that discussion and that conversation. Um, the issues I've chosen to take on, I take on because I think conservatives slash libertarians should be championing them, but they are not always as present in those fields. Um, and I think that it's important to try to do outreach with what you believe. If I am just working on an issue that I'm selling to libertarians, what am I really accomplishing or getting done? It'd be really easy to just have a libertarian fan base and champion you know, things that people want to hear, essentially. When you're trying to actually affect change, when you're trying to actually pass big policy proposals, you have to be able to work with everybody and you have to be able to sell everybody your beliefs and your views. Um, if I were not able to sell the death penalty to Republicans and why we should be repealing it, it would not be getting repealed in this country. You don't have enough Democrats to do it. It's because Republicans are starting to not only vote for it, but champion it and sponsor it and lead it um, that this is happening. That took a tremendous amount of groundwork and outreach and education to Republicans to talk about the reasons this issue didn't match up with their values and, and should be done away with. Um, similarly, when I was at the Beacon Center, a lot of what I was doing was trying to preach free market principles to the left. And so that mm -hmm. meant not just picking red meat tax policy issues, that meant finding issues that impacted people on the left, going in and showing them, you know, we too care about these issues, we're compassionate, we don't like to see you getting beat up this way by the government, but these big government solutions you've been fed for decades have failed. And we have alternate policies that I think could work better, like, will you trust me and work with me on this? That's school choice, that's occupational licensing reform, that's corporate welfare, um, and I've had incredible success preaching my values to both the left and right. And so I think that um, it's a really important issue if you take yourself out of the partisanship and just wanting to win and crush your enemy, you can really get a lot done. I think most people in this country agree on a lot of the problems. We just don't always agree on the solutions. There's a lot of demonizing that happens, like, oh, you just believe in this for this. Where if you just have a conversation with somebody and really get down to it, you can actually usually kind of come to, the, to an agreement. I talk with Democrats all the time about the values of capitalism. This is a door that I've seen opening um, quite a bit lately where you see the left really pushing towards socialism. And you've got a lot of Democrats that are saying, hang on, I'm not a socialist, I don't believe that. But what, if, what are capitalism's answers to these problems that I care deeply about? You know, how does right. capitalism handle racial bias in the government or in business? How does capitalism respond to climate change? These are things that I care about. Show me how your values can help me um, solve them. And so those are huge um, doors, but I think that that comes from being a person who treats people well, not demonizing people, being open to conversations, and also listening. Because if you're not listening to what they say they need and what they want, and what they're concerned about, you're not going to be able to adequately answer their questions and tell them why you think your solutions are a better idea. 
I really like, I mean, I really like that orientation. One of the things that really worries me is that a lot of people's models, particularly when you're young, of like what it looks like to be influential or persuasive are people who are not even playing that game, who are actually raising their status within their tribe, right? And, and some of these people I even like and sometimes think will make good points, but what they're really doing is they're, they are preaching to the choir and like can do it in really clever ways and can make their opponents look bad. But if you actually ask, well, how many people have you taken from, you know, the left to the right or from uh, progressive to classical liberal, like they don't have much to show for it. And so if that's your model, you're in a lot of trouble because there's some overlap between winning a debate and being persuasive, but frighteningly little. And yeah. so that, I mean, the, the, I guess that gets into uh, uh, your, your work in the, with the death penalty that I've read. And so, you know, where I came from is like, I grew up just thinking like, yeah, obviously this is a good thing. And emotionally and morally, I still think it's right. But politically, my view is that because you cannot guard against the chance of killing an innocent person and definitely not in my view, in today's criminal justice system, I think it has to be off the table because I think the chances of killing an innocent person are monstrous. But it's a, it's a very controversial issue. And yet I've been impressed with like that you don't make it partisan and you, the, 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 well, I'll just tell people. So I don't even, I'm sorry, I don't, I'll link to the particular op-ed that I first read for people. But the thing that jumped out at me was, you know, you just stated some facts about the cost uh, involved because it seems and, and where they come from like I've heard how expensive it is to keep on to keep people on death row and the intuition that people have is oh it's because we let them have endless appeals and uh, whatnot and you made two points that I thought were overwhelmingly impressive one is almost all of it is the upfront cost of the initial trial and the second point which should have been obvious but it just never quite occurred to me if do you really want to lo lo you know, lower the barriers to putting somebody innocent on death row by um, taking out the, you know, by reducing our, our kind of checks on the use of the death penalty? So uh, I just want to start there with how did you come to see this issue in a different light? And then sort of what have you found have been the things that have really made the lights go on for people that you've changed their minds? Yeah, the definitely so fun to talk about, which is <laughs> sounds really <laughs> weird. <laughs> it's it's an issue that everybody has an opinion on, which so many issues in, in politics, people, you know, if they're not personally impacted, don't necessarily care that much about. But the death penalty, strangely, is something everybody feels strongly on, even if they've never been anywhere near the justice system. Um, that was true for me. I was a very pro-death penalty person. I was a very like tough on crime. I loved Jack Bauer and Elliot Stabler. And like, I don't, I think I would have liked to have been like a forensic detective at one point in my life. Like I really bought into like the CSI genre. <laughs> right. Um, but similar to most people in that camp, I had never been within 10 feet of the justice system. I had no clue what I was talking about. I had this hugely hypocritical stance where I knew government was prone to corruption and error and inefficiency, but I somehow exempted the Justice Department and police from that principle, which is obviously not true. Um, 
So I fortunately was doing some volunteer work as a lobbyist for the National Alliance on Mental Illness when I was first getting involved with policy and they asked me to work on the issue. And as I've done at many points in my career, I've said, no, I can't work with you or work on that issue. Like if I don't align with it, I'm not going to take a check um, just to go do it. And they were really surprised about that because they were a bit more left leaning on their staff and I was sort of their token, you know, like limited government person there. And mm -hmm. why do you trust the government to do this? You know, you hate the government. What are you talking about? <laughs> and no one had ever twisted my view on me in that way. And it, it hit, it landed. So I went home, I started reading, I took some um, studies from their office and also just hit the internet. And I was really, really got smacked by how the system was functioning. And as someone who really is deeply concerned with individual liberty and with protecting individuals from government, I became furious um, the more I got into it. And I think that that's largely what's been happening across the country, especially over the past 10 years. People like me who've never been near the system are getting to see behind the curtain in a lot of ways that they didn't before through um, just the age of information in general, but also I think through the expansion of the true crime genre, you have podcasts, you have documentaries, you have all this entertainment value at your fingertips that's educating people and letting them see how this functions. And they're recognizing that by no means um, is the Justice Department or our legal community exempt from these problems that we see in all other areas of government. And we really need to rethink our approaches and, and how much control and power we've allowed this institution to have. Um, so the innocence issues are key. There's been one person exonerated for every nine executions. Uh, as that statistic out. blew me away. Um, and, and as you point out, which I think people, nobody understands unless they've really looked into it. Exonerated is sort of like, like th that's not the minimum number of innocent people who are on there. That's like the ultimate max because it is so hard to get exonerated. One of the most impactful things I saw, and you always have to be careful drawing conclusions from documentaries because almost every documentary is pretty biased. Um, but I saw the trilogy on uh, the Memphis Three uh, who, who were put into jail, um, Damian Eccles, and I'm sorry, I forget the other two name names, but at least by what I saw in this documentary like there was overwhelming evidence that they were not guilty of these murders and Damien was on death row the, and came very close to dying um, and eventually were able to get out of jail but only by giving up their right to prove their innocence to get exonerated and so it was in effect everybody saying yeah like we're gonna let you out of jail because we are in effect saying we recognize your innocence but you're still not exonerated and so that's when I was like oh, there's people who are let off who aren't even exonerated and still have to like wear that around their neck. Um, so that, to me, that was a, a shocking number that you, that you introduced. It, yeah, you're, you're right on all counts and it is a shocking number. And, and I don't think most Americans have any idea how hard it is for a wrongful conviction to work itself out of the system in any, um, in any method. So I think what you're talking about what they did was an Alfred plea, um, right. not with the case, but that happens a lot where you essentially um, basically don't get to then try to obtain a monetary settlement for being wrongfully convicted. Um, you don't get the full exoneration that can still hurt you with employment and many other opportunities. And so when one person has been exonerated from death row for every nine executions, that's the gold standard. We've had hundreds and hundreds of others who have been wrongfully convicted and released, but didn't fully get exonerated due to factors like that. Or we've had people put to death where we pretty much no, they were innocent. There was overwhelming evidence of their innocence, but they couldn't get new DNA tested. They couldn't get a new trial. 
um, they got um, just sorted in every way. The government works very, very diligently to uphold itself and to make sure that it does not overturn these cases. So uh, it's a huge problem. I feel certain we execute innocent people every year in this country, and I feel certain we will continue to. When people say that, oh, we just need to fix it, we tried that. We tried that multiple times, especially in the 1970s when it was banned for a while, and then it came back and states put in all of these factors that were supposed to make sure it was truly only the worst of the worst and not arbitrarily applied and, and that we made sure we didn't get innocent people. And we have, you know, six decades worth of data now to show that that's been an utter failure. It operates in the exact same manner. Um, and so the innocence issues are, are at the top of a lot of people's um, minds with this. But then you add in all the other factors. Um, there's endless problems with it. I always say when I um, am lobbying or when I'm giving an interview on this or if I'm presenting testimony, I've often had people say, oh, you're really good at this. And I'm like, well, maybe, but also like the facts are all on my side. It's not just mm -hmm. that I'm a compelling debater. Um, it's that there's not really a good argument for it. Uh, we have dozens upon dozens of murder victims, family members who do not want this, who talk about how it actually exasperates their pain and makes their situation worse and how it wastes money that could be better allocated towards actually giving them things they really do need in the wake of some of these tragedies. We know that it's the most expensive part of the criminal justice system. We know that shortening the appellate process would only lead to more innocent people being killed and would not reduce the cost. We know it's not a deterrent. We know it's arbitrarily applied. It really comes down to the county where the crime is committed. 2% um, of counties in this country drive the majority of death penalty sentences. And to date, since it was reinstated, every execution has come from less than 16% of counties. So it has very little to do with the nature or the heinousness of the crime. It really comes down to whether or not you have an aggressive DA who's trying to pursue death penalty cases, which most are not because they waste a lot of money. They're a clog on the system and they contribute to fewer crimes being solved. So not only is it not a deterrent, I think it's something that makes us less safe because we waste so much on these trials that largely end up being for show because most of these executions never even come to pass. Um, that's money we're not spending on solving more crimes, which we do very, very little of in this country, especially violent crimes. Uh, it's money we're not spending on programs that could actually work to intervene and prevent violence. So it's this huge, hugely problematic sentence. We see this overrun with racial bias. Um, we still see that the race of the victim is one of the leading determinants in who gets the sentence. If you kill a white person, you are incredibly more likely to get the death penalty than if you kill a black person or a Hispanic person. And to date, across all of the death rows in the country, the leading combination is a black defendant with a white victim. That's predominantly who we give the sentence to. So there's, um, there's endless problems. And then you can go into the, the mental illness issues of people on death row. You can talk about the veteran population of people on death row who we asked to serve for our country, um, who were damaged while serving and who didn't get the help and treatment they needed when they got back. And then violence ended up ensuing and we stuck them on death row. And so there's, there's lots of angles. There's kind of something there for everybody. If one thing doesn't piss you off, certainly something else will. Is there any thing in particular you found is uh, one of the most like high leverage arguments or facts that um, seems to resonate, let's say with conservatives who traditionally are the people more supportive of the death penalty? Um, if there was just one to pick out, it would be the innocence issues. I think it's pretty hard to claim you're pro-life in any way and support a system where you have one person exonerated for every nine executions. Um, it's pretty hard to say you support limited government when you have those stats going on. But more so than often, I find that it's sort of just a compounding of problems where people, when you're talking to them, will go, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. And then they'll get to one thing, they'll go, that's it. I'm over it. Like, I'm done. I'm done with this. You're right. 
government shouldn't have that power. And, you know, I think that one reason we've been successful is we're not sitting here trying to have a morality argument. I'm not going to argue whether or not it's biblical. I'm not going to argue whether or not theoretically it's ever appropriate. We have people and our supporters that fall on both sides of that argument. Um, it doesn't really matter to me personally. I don't think it's ever appropriate um, based on my Christian worldview and faith. But if you do, that's okay as long as you agree that it is not appropriate to have it functioning in the way that we have it and that government should never have this power and isn't capable of uh, running a system where it would ever be ethical. Are there, are there any arguments that you've found the hardest to deal with? Maybe you think that it's clear cut, but making clear to others that it's clear cut is more difficult. Largely, our only organized opposition to these issues are district attorney conferences across the country, and you'll find that they oppose just about every measure of criminal justice reform that there is. Mm -hmm. um, typically, what their arguments are are trying to disprove the facts that I just said. You know, oh, it really is a deterrent, um, or oh, it's not that expensive, and, and they're handily um, disproven by that. They'll often also say that victims need it and want it, um, which never actually bears out when you actually have the committee hearing happening and they have maybe one victim stand member there who wants to keep it and there's 36, 40 others they're ignoring that want to get rid of it. Um, the only thing I've seen them really gain traction with has been an argument they've recently started trying that um, they try to say they need it for plea bargaining, which that makes me mad. Um, <laughs> So plea bargaining is a huge problem in our system, period. We, you very rarely get a trial in this country anymore, even though you have a right to a fair and speedy trial. Um, over 95% of cases are pled out. What that means is they are rapidly pursuing cases. They actually don't have enough evidence to take to trial typically, but they're getting money and getting things out of people um, by hanging these things over their head and saying, oh, if you don't confess and take this plea, then you're going to get this sentence. So the idea that they would do that with the death penalty, you're going to threaten somebody with the death penalty to get them to take a plea deal is disgusting. I think that makes you a terrible attorney, first and foremost. Um, secondarily, we know that leads to false confessions. We have adequate data showing just how often that leads to people making confessions to crimes that they did not do because they're scared and they're being bullied. Um, personally, I think plea bargaining should be done away with in this country altogether. Um, I think it's a disgusting practice. We've seen one state do that, Alaska, and they have not seen anything detrimental come from that. There's a great study um, examining that. We've also seen in states that have repealed the death penalty, of which there are now 22, that that uh, fear-mongering prediction by prosecutors that they won't be able to get convictions, won't be able to solve murders uh, without the death penalty has no bearing on their solvency rates. And I will point out that uh, they only clear about 60% of homicides as it is in the country every year. So they're just not very good at solving murder. Um, I did, the Alaska thing is really interesting because I've always been skeptical of plea bargaining. I mean, like, it, it, because if the process is supposed to get at the truth, like it, it's a very different if like the process is supposed to convict people, but that's not what the process is supposed to do. The process is supposed to get at the truth so that we have just outcomes insofar as that's possible for, you know, uh, any human system. And like a, a negotiation where it's in effect your money or your life, like that's, that's not orienting it towards, um, towards truth. It's basically how do we stack the deck with so many charges and so uh, horrific a consequences if you try to go to court to, if you try to get your day in court, which you're constitutionally guaranteed the uh, your right to, uh, by trial, it's in effect 
trying to take that away without officially taking it away. Um, so I, yeah, I'll be really curious to, to look into Alaska. The one other argument I've heard conservatives I respect make, and I, I can think of Thomas Sowell as one of them, is like, this is specifically on the deterrent point. He goes, well, of course it's a deterrent. It's a deterrent to all of those people that they would have killed had they, you know, been released as, you know, many of these life without parole um, people are. How do you think about that sort of argument? Well, they're not. So that's a false argument. People have a, a big problem with confusing a life sentence and a life without parole sentence. People who are sentenced to life in prison without parole are never released. They don't come up for parole. They have no chance of being released unless, unless they are wrongfully convicted and that somehow works its way out of the system or unless they're granted clemency or a pardon by the governor or the president. So there's this, um, I think it's an intentional um, action to try to misinform people on that. Um, people don't get out with life in prison without parole. And we certainly know that we have many other ways, especially in the modern era, of ensuring that someone who is committing violence is removed from society and society is protected from that person. Uh, I also think people who make that argument show that they have very little understanding of violence, of what causes it, of its treatments, of how to cure it. Um, those aren't people I really want making policy decisions because to me it says they're not very educated on the topic. Uh, we know a lot about violence, especially in the past two or three decades, as we've learned more about the brain, as we've learned more about mental health issues, we're really seeing uh, what factors lead to violence. You know, there's this, this Hollywood idea that people who commit crime are all just these mass murderers who can't be stopped or controlled. And they're just prone to violence and they come out violent and they'll never not be violent. That's not who we see in our prisons. Um, even Ted Bundy, who's somebody who gets brought up to me all the time, is such an outlier of a, of a person who commits crimes. Um, typically, we see people who very early on are victims themselves. And so oftentimes, the public has this idea of like victim perpetrator, and it's very black and white. And they don't see like, this person's also a victim over here oftentimes. And typically, it's someone who has been victimized over and over and over. And we know that people who have been through trauma, it changes the brain. It changes the way the brain responds in situations. It changes the decision-making process. And so there are things we could be doing to identify people who are um, being harmed in this way early on and begin intervening before violence occurs, which is really what our system should be doing is seeking to limit violence. Currently, our system really says violence occurred. How do we be as punitive as possible to this person and really pummel them? And we don't ever do anything to break those cycles of harm. And so we continue to see violence perpetrate itself generationally in families and communities, and nobody's getting the help they need. The victims aren't getting the help they need. The victims' families aren't getting the help they need. The perpetrators themselves aren't getting the help they need. Um, what we do see happen when those people do get what they need, even after violence has occurred, when they actually get treatment, when they actually have people that are trying to help restore them as a person, we've seen many people who have committed harm come out and live very full lives, become productive citizens, work to interrupt violence themselves down the road, um, become huge advocates for victims. And so I know that that's possible. I know because of my faith that it's possible too. You know, if I say I'm a Christian, I believe anybody can be redeemed and that their life still has value. Um, and so this idea that there's just these rabid criminals we have to put down, that's the only way to deal with them. That's a very caveman attitude. And thankfully we're much more developed than that mentality at this point. 
So I want to end with something that you raised kind of in passing that I haven't talked about in this podcast, but people raise it to me a lot, which is, you know, the kind of blowback that you get as somebody in the public eye advocating ideas and on a controversial issue. And I think particularly in the last, you know, few months, people have become even more worried about voicing their views when it runs against, you know, what is kind of approved opinion. And so I'm just curious as to how do you cope with that and uh, what advice you have for somebody who maybe is not going to make a lifetime of being in the public eye, but has views they care about and wants to, wants to speak out on them in ways that are effective, um, but, you know, have that kind of concern. Yeah. Um, it's hard. It's a really difficult climate right now. You know, I know people in politics full time who are terrified to talk about their views and their beliefs, especially if it's something they're not working on specifically. I think that's really detrimental for our society. I think it's detrimental for our political system. Uh, but I want to also say I recognize there are real fears. You know, people do lose their jobs. They do have their families attacked. Some people do get stalked or doxxed or um, really uh, have violence perpetrated against them in some ways for speaking out. For me, that comes down to your convictions. Um, I, when I first got in politics, especially, I think uh, as a woman tend to get a little bit more of that. Um, and I had to make a decision, you know, is this something I really want to do? And I thought I didn't get into politics to be silent or to, to toe the party line. I got into politics because I have something to say. I think it should be said and I'm going to stand on my convictions and I will, you know, I'm a smart girl. I will always be able to work. So I, I think that there's, um, a mentality that has to come along there of like, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to stand up and fight for this, even if it costs me at times, because it is the right thing to do. And because I feel that I am supposed to be doing it. Um, I think other people have to decide where they fall on that spectrum, right? But I do encourage people to try to speak out and get more involved because it's not as bad as you might think. Like that's sort of the worst case scenarios. And that does happen, but it typically happens to people who have a much bigger platform than you or I or anybody that, you know, is kind of looking at this. I think you also don't have to be online. You know, a lot of the work you do can be one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. You can get involved with local associations or chapters or groups in your area of like-minded people, you can just go talk to your lawmakers and let them know how you'd like to see them vote and that you're going to be holding them accountable. There's so many things you can do that aren't putting yourself out there to the extent that I have um, that I think are, are good mediums. And it also just depends on people's comfortability. Some people don't like being in the public eye. Some people would be terrified to give a public speech. So it's finding the, the method that is where you're most comfortable but I do think people should know that more so than anything, I get so much encouragement from people. Every day I have the nicest messages in my inbox. I have people just dropping in to encourage me. Um, I meet incredible people across the internet. I go on to work with a lot of them. And as a whole, it's been a very fulfilling, um, great career and great space for me. Um, you can also be really mindful of how you keep your settings. Like I have my settings set to where I don't see any notifications unless I'm following you. And so I only follow good people. And if someone's talking trash about me, I largely don't see it unless someone sends me a screenshot. Um, and even then, you know, I think there's just a recognition that people who are trying to demean others that are talking trash about them or trying to really be divisive are hurting people too. Um, and I think that as someone who works in criminal justice, who wants to see restorative justice, uh, I recognize hurt and trauma in people, even when they're not offenders of violent crime. You can see the impacts of things people have been through. And so I think I have a lot of empathy, even for people who are 
mean to me or who wish me um, harm because I, I see that they're hurting often. And I really think most people, again, if you sit down and have a conversation, you can gain some traction. I've seen that with the death penalty when I took over the organization I run. I had so many people say, you're going to get totally just flattened. People are going to be so mad. They're going to yell at you all the time. And I've really never had that happen. I've had people mm -hmm. who were um, really excited to hear about the organization and to get involved, or I've had people that were just genuinely confused. You know, they'll say, hold on, I'm a conservative and I'm pro-death penalty. Like, what happened? Who moved the ball? <laughs> Am I supposed to be in death penalty now? Um, so it's it's actually not ever been as bad as, as people think, and, and you can do a lot to mitigate um, some of the negativity and, and just protect yourself and your mental health as well. Yeah, that's been my experience too. I mean, particularly if you're not arguing like in a, in a partisan way if you're just focused on the ideas what's the best way to make this choice and here's how i think about it i mean i have quite controversial ideas and i've been in the public eye for now you know close to 20 years and i nothing bad has ever happened uh and not even that many mean comments but um i think one thing people undervalue is the cost of remaining silent when you believe that you have to speak out because the fact that they're worrying about this, saying, I know I should be doing something, you're bearing a cost right now. And you have to take that into account and say, like, like, do you want to regret not doing everything you can to make the world that you and your people you love live in as good as it can be? And uh, so that's, that's certainly how I think about it. That's um, important. You know, John Lewis's passing recently really kind of elevated that for me again, where I thought, wow, he was willing to be beaten and even killed to do the right thing, to stand up for what he believed. Like, I'm not being asked to do that. I'm being asked to be vocal, to organize, you know, to lend my voice. And yeah, maybe some people are mean to you sometimes, but so what? <laughs> you know, that's, that's not that much to sacrifice or deal with. And I think if you don't do that, the costs are, are far greater, as you pointed out. Thanks a lot, Hannah. This was a lot of fun.